And you're doing the most natural thing in the world. I mean, we are literally, and I mean literally, hardwired to respond this way when our child is in distress. It's the, it's in a child's nature to look to parents for um, help and protection and soothing and regulation when they are anxious. And it's within a parent's nature to respond by providing those things. And in, if you're dealing with a child who's not particularly vulnerable to a lot of anxiety, maybe in a specific moment, it actually is going to be a good way to respond. But when you have this child who is prone to anxiety, it ends up maintaining the problem rather than improving it. Hi, this is Danae. I'm the founder of Simple Families. Simple Families is an online community for parents who are seeking a simpler, more intentional life. In this show, we focus on minimalism with kids, positive parenting, family wellness, and decreasing the mental load. My perspectives are based in my firsthand experience raising kids, but also rooted in my PhD in child development. So you're going to hear conversations that are based in research, but more importantly, real life. Thanks for joining us. Hi there, that voice you heard in the introduction is Dr. Ellie Leibowitz. Dr. Leibowitz studies and treats child and adolescent anxiety at the Yale Child Study Center. One thing that makes his work unique is that the method he created, the space treatment method, is geared entirely towards the parents of anxious children. He has research to show that the space treatment method, which includes only the parents in treatment, is as effective as treating the child directly, which could be really positive for kids who are resistant or otherwise unable to participate. In his book, Breaking Free of Child Anxiety and OCD, he details this method in a parent-friendly way. For many years, I've been a big proponent of helping parents help their own children. However, I do wanna add a disclaimer here. If you have a child that suffers from an anxiety disorder, anxiety that impacts their ability to function on a day-to-day basis, or a neurodivergent child, maybe an autistic child, child with sensory processing challenges, who has anxiety that may be related to that neurodivergency. I recommend that you get the support of a professional. As parents, we can help to support our own children, but sometimes we need that help ourselves too. I do think that many of you will find his methods helpful and you'll enjoy his book, But I do want you to remember that this method was originally designed to be implemented with the support of a professional. So don't be afraid to reach out for a helping hand to a professional if you need it. Thanks again for tuning in. I think you're going to enjoy this chat. Hi, Ellie. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Well, I'm happy to have you here. I have so many questions and I know that child anxiety is on the mind of many, many parents across the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Child anxiety is on the minds of many parents across the world always, because even in the best of times, child anxiety problems are so prevalent. But I think in the world that we're currently living in, which is, you know, past couple of years are hard to describe as the best of times, we've seen such a dramatic surge in the prevalence of these problems that, um, it's undoubtedly a a topic of concern for so many people. Yes. And I have recommended your book, Breaking Free of Child Anxiety and OCD, to so many parents. 
And I want to explain to you what I see the differentiating factor between your book and others in this genre. Um, I've read a lot of books that are geared towards parents that are something like how to coach your kid to do A, how to coach your kid to do B, um, intended for parents, parent manuals to help parents help their own kids. And I read those as a professional and as a parent. And I just look, I read it and I'm like, wow, I, I can't do that. I'm not going to be able to do that with my own kid. Um, mm-hmm. And your book is the first book that I have read that I was like, I think I think I can do this. I think parents can do this. And that felt really good to have something that felt really manageable. Mm. Well, first of all, thank you for reading the book and also for recommending it. But I think you are really hitting the nail on the head in terms of the differentiating factor, certainly one of the key differentiating factors. I think so often parents get, you know, that kind of advice of like, get your child to do this or get your child to stop doing that. And my like basic premise is that we can't, we can't always do that. You know, I meet a lot of parents whose children, for example, struggle to go to school and because of anxiety or sometimes other problems, and parents are always told, well, you got to make them go, right? You got to make them go. And sure, that sounds like really good advice. But if you can't tell a parent how they're going to make their child do anything, whether it's go to school or whether it's anything else, then you're not really being that helpful. You know, you're just kind of setting them up for a lot of frustration. And sometimes, you're even making things worse because one of the things that happens when parents try to make their child do something is that sometimes the result is actually more conflict because a child might dig in and be even more resistant and then parents get frustrated and they push harder and you end up with more conflict and more frustration. And I don't think that's really helpful. So in, in the work that I do and in, in space, the treatment that is really described in the book that you mentioned, I make a really simple promise to parents right at the beginning. And that is, at no point in this entire process are you going to be asked to make your child do anything or to not do anything. And I think it just makes it so much more achievable. Right. And I think around the age two is when we are we stop being able to make our kids do anything, <laughs> right? Like once they are big enough to really develop that will of their own, our our ability to to make them or force them to do anything really starts to to wane at that point. But I find, and I don't know if you see this, but so many parents who are coming to resources like yours are already so overwhelmed. And then you add plans that are highly complex onto that and ask them to do these things that are incredibly difficult, if not impossible to do. And then they end up feeling more overwhelmed and they end up feeling like failures and probably more anxious themselves. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I think that's very true. You know, I'm a parent myself. I have three children and uh, I can identify or (laughs) certainly empathize, but also identify with that. Uh, with that feeling, because it really can be so overwhelming. You're already frustrated. You're already exhausted and weary from coping with the day in and day out challenges. 
of raising a child and you know raising any child has its challenges it has its great moments i love being a parent it's the favorite part of my life is being uh, a parent but it also means endless dilemmas and endless challenges and when your child is struggling with a problem like an anxiety disorder or uh, some similar problem well, those challenges and dilemmas, they're just multiplied a thousandfold because every moment can present, um, you know, a real, a real struggle and questions that you don't really know how to handle and feeling helpless. And so I think you're exactly right. I think many parents will start this process already with such a handicap of feeling so overwhelmed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there is a chapter in your book and that has, it's a question actually, it says, is anxiety taking over your family? What are some signs that we can look for if it is, and maybe we just haven't even noticed? Yeah. Um, I think that's actually a really important question for parents to be asking themselves because, you know, we think about a child as, you know, a child who has a problem as exactly that, as the child has the problem, right? Like if your child has a you know, a, a sprained ankle, well, that problem is in the child. And sure, it might impact you in different ways. I mean, you've probably got to take your kid to the doctor and, and, uh, and help them out with some things, but you essentially think of it as the child's problem. But what happens with anxiety is that the natural course of events is that the problem is not only in the child, it actually does impact the family system. So what are some signs that parents can be looking for? Well, I would say, ask yourself some basic questions. How much of my time, for example, is being impacted by this child's problem? How much of my time is not really my time, but starts being my child's anxiety time because I'm spending time reassuring them or coming home early from work or uh, doing the things that help them to feel less anxious or, um, you could ask yourself, what about my personal space? It, can I be separate from my child? Can I have my own personal space? And for a lot of parents who have a very anxious child, the answer to that question is, what are you talking about? What personal space? Because it feels like my child is always there. Maybe they're trailing me around the house. Maybe they're sleeping in my bed at night. Maybe they uh, go with me everywhere I go, or I can't go places because uh, my child can't be away from me. Can I, can I tell you an anecdote that yeah. uh, comes to mind about this? It's like a little bit funny, but it's also, uh, I think, um, captures the feeling that I'm talking about. And this um, is from a, a mom that I worked with who had a child with pretty bad separation anxiety. And this child, aside from the moments when they were literally in school, was always with the mom uh, because they were so scared of being away from from mom. I mean, if, if they if they couldn't see the parent, it felt like, you know, will I ever see them again? Are they going to come back? What if they die in an accident? What if something happens to me? And so they always needed to be right next to mom in order to feel safe. I mean, literally, it meant that if this mom, you know, was invited to a wedding, if the child couldn't go, mom didn't go to the wedding. So you can see the kind of impact that it would have. But um, the the part that I was re remembering now is when, when this mom took the very first step toward trying to 
break away a little bit from that intense level of accommodation of the anxiety that was happening. Well, the first thing she did was she decided this is her big plan. She's going to take out the garbage without the child going with her. And believe it or not, this was like a huge step that she had to really gear herself up for and, and get ready for. And then she did it and she took out the garbage by herself. And she came to the next session with me and she told me, you know, I went outside and I was carrying this big stinky bag of garbage and I felt free as a butterfly <laughs> because that's the level of impact. When I talk about, you know, anxiety taking over a family, that's the kind of impact that it can have. So ask yourself, is it taking over my time? Is it taking over my personal space? Is it taking over my actions? You know, am I doing things because I think I want to do them or I should be doing or I need to do them? Or am I doing the things that my child's anxiety demands that I do? Like if you have a child with, uh, say, an obsessive compulsive disorder, you may find yourself doing endless rituals with the child or for the child. And finally, I would say, think about your own feelings, your emotions. How much is your uh, just well-being, your state of mind and your feelings, how much are they impacted? by your child's anxiety, because it can be somewhat contagious. And sometimes it's easy to feel overwhelmed by anxiety when your child is so anxious. And I think the more that you uh, find the answers to those questions, kind of showing you all these different ways that you're being impacted and the whole family's life is being impacted, that's what I'm thinking about when I talk about it taking over the family. Yeah. And I think that sometimes families exist this way for so long that they don't even see it. Mm-hmm. That it, they wouldn't even call it anxiety. Maybe they would just say that they have a kid that's very attached or a little bit clingy. But I, I do think that, you know, like here's an example from um, in the pandemic, some a way that anxiety surfaced with my kids and I didn't even realize it. Um, for a long time, we would, my husband and I would just run in and do a quick errand, grab some groceries or whatever it is. And they would stay in the car and just listen to a podcast. Mm-hmm. And then in March, when we started taking off the masks, I, I was like, okay, well, let's go into the grocery store. And my kids were like, no, my, my one kid, especially my anxious kid was like, no, no, I want to stay in the car. I'm like, well, no, come into the grocery store. Like, no, I want to stay in the car. Mm. And then I realized it just kind of clicked that this was anxiety, right? And this was going to be something that we had to work through because we spent so long keeping them in the car to keep them away from the germs, to keep them safe. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's, I think uh, that that's exactly right. So often it just becomes how we do things. And, you know, you're kind of living this pattern and you don't even realize just how deeply impacted by anxiety it actually is. And that's why parents who actually work through the the book that you mentioned, the Breaking Free of Child Anxiety uh, book, one of the steps that they'll actually go through is a kind of careful guided mapping of all the different ways that they have been accommodating the child, that the child's anxiety is impacting their behavior. And it's a really aha kind of moment for a lot of parents to suddenly take stock like that and realize, wow, you know what? We're actually really pretty influenced by, by this. The other thing, by the way, that your, um, your anecdote, which is, which is great, uh, made me think of is something that I think a lot of people um, sort of missed when it came to thinking about anxiety and the pandemic. Because I talked to a lot of people about, you know, how to help children cope with the pandemic, especially when it was starting. And so much of the focus was how are children going to cope with 
uh, lockdown and social distancing and schools closing and things like that. And the focus was all on the today. And one of the points that I really tried to communicate, and I think we're really seeing this play out now more recently, one of those points was we need to also be thinking about the day after, about the time when schools reopen, when we ask children to go back to functioning in the normal ways that we're currently suspending. There are actually a lot of anxious children for whom the lockdown and the social distancing was the easy part of yeah. the pandemic. Because or it even helped them with, it even exactly. helped their social anxiety because it allowed them to escape those demands that they avoided yes. before. Yeah, exactly. If you have social anxiety, well, it might be easier for you to do school over Zoom and you can turn off your camera and you don't have to walk into a classroom yeah. full of people. If you have separation anxiety, well, hey, lockdown is like, <laughs> it's right. like, it's a dream. you know, uh, ideal, right? So it can feel like a dream. Like mom doesn't go anywhere. Dad doesn't go anywhere. We're all here in the house together. But we know that then comes a day when we have to pick up those threads of function and coping and I think we're seeing that play out a lot now is that a lot of kids are actually struggling more when we ask them to go back. Like now it is time to go back into the store and it's like, no, I want to stay in the car because I've learned that this feels safer. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that I've been kind of watching as we, you know, in March, we started taking my kids' schools, both um, dropped their mask mandate. We were allowed to take the masks off and I have one kid that would have continued to wear the mask until death, like mm. his whole life, um, yeah. if he would have been given the choice. And I knew that, that, that he was finding safety in that. So when we as a family took our masks off and the grownups did, and we deemed that it was safe for us, we also took the masks away and made the masks mm -hmm. disappear and didn't give our kids a choice to continue wearing the masks. And I did see that other people made different choices for their kids. And I see, I still see kids wearing masks when no one else in the family is and parents saying, you know, they still want to wear it and they feel safer with it. Is that a way of accommodating anxiety? How do you see that? Yeah, I think it definitely can be. I think there are going to be different choices that different parents make. And really what makes the best sense for one family is not always what's going to make the most sense for another family or for another child. So I think it's hard to say this is the right way to do it for everybody. But at the same time, I do think it's important to ask yourself the why. Why does this child still feel uh, like they want to be wearing the mask? Is it, some, is it that you know, they are anxious? Is it that they are avoiding um, you know, something? Is it about the germs? Sometimes it's actually even about just the social exposure of having people see your, your face. It doesn't even have to necessarily be about the germs. And the more, uh, the more it's really centered around I'm anxious and I'm avoiding, the more likely it is that encouraging a child to practice coping with that feeling of anxiety and overcoming it is going to be a better strategy in the end than doing the thing that currently helps me to feel most comfortable. Okay, so the um, what you just mentioned there, which is this huge mindset shift, this tiny little language shift, but a huge mindset shift that you introduce in your method, which is teaching the kids that they can tolerate the anxiety. Can you talk more about that? Because it has been a huge change agent for us. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is 
really the most important thing that you can do for a child who's vulnerable to anxiety, who's predisposed to some higher levels of anxiety. I think the most important thing that you can do for them is actually teach them that they can handle feeling anxious. You know, when people think about what does it mean to treat anxiety, I think a lot of people would say, well, it means to help somebody be less anxious. And of course, you want somebody to, you know, who has a lot of anxiety to be less anxious. But actually, I think a better way to think about what is my goal as a parent, and honestly, even as a therapist, um, what is my goal with this child? I think it's better defined as helping them to get better at being anxious, to feel more like they can handle anxiety. And that's for a couple of reasons. One thing is that actually most of the impairment, most of the disruption to just day-to-day functioning that stems from anxiety comes from the belief that I can't handle feeling anxious. It's not really the fact that your anxiety is higher that is the, more, the most impairing thing. It's the fact that you feel like you can't handle that anxiety. Um, you know, if you imagine two children, so less, just for a point of clarity here. So yeah. this, cause th- this, I do feel like there's, it's such a finite shift in language. It's not about teaching them that they can handle the task. Like, you know, you're afraid of going to school, right? It's not about teaching them. You got this, you can go to school, you can handle school. It's about you, you can handle this anxiety you have. You can handle these right. these hard things. You can feelings handle feeling anxious, and everything will step will flow from that. As soon as you start believing about yourself that you can handle being anxious, you are well on the way to overcoming your anxiety problem. Be- from that change in how you see yourself will come then the change in your behavior and the lower levels of anxiety overall. But that is, I think, the most important change. And the way to do it is not just to um, you know, demand that a child suddenly be strong and brave and able to do anything, but to show them that you see them that way, that you believe that they can handle anxiety. And that's something that you can show them regardless of what they actually do in this moment. Do they go pet the dog or do they not go pet the dog? Do they go to sleep in their own bed or do they not go to sleep in their own bed? You don't always have control over those things, but you can control what is the image of themselves that you are reflecting to them. I say to, I say to parents very often, think of yourself like, like a mirror that your child is looking into and they're seeing who they are. And if they look in that mirror of your reactions and your responses, if they look in that mirror and what they see is a child who is weak and vulnerable and helpless in the face of their own anxiety, well, that's how they're going to see themselves. But if they look in that mirror and what they see reflected to them is a child who is strong, who can handle that difficulty, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it is distressing in that moment, but they see an image of themselves as a child who can handle it, they're going to start believing that. And so one of the things that parents really learn to do in this treatment in space is to reflect that to their child through messages of support, messages that communicate to the child, first of all, that I do get it, that it really is hard. 
um, acknowledging that. We're not dismissing it or, or denying it. It genuinely is hard, but also I believe that you can handle that difficulty. And as you start really communicating that message to your child, they're going to start believing that more about themselves as well. We're going to pause for a two-minute break from today's sponsors. The first sponsor for today is Faerty. Many of you know that I have a love affair with Faerty, especially the top sale overalls right now. Whether you're spending long sunny days by the pool or exploring new places on vacation, there's a huge urge this year to make the most out of summer. Faerty makes high-quality clothing that's incredibly soft and comfortable. It's always sustainably minded and meant to be worn from surf to city. And one of my favorite perks, they have a lifetime guarantee of quality, so they'll replace or fix your clothes forever, no matter what. Right now, Faerty is giving 20% off to all listeners. Let me say that again, 20% off. Head to faertybrand.com simple and use the code simple at checkout to get this deal. That's code simple at Faerty, F-A-H-E-R-T-Y, brand.com simple for 20% off. Fairtybrand.com slash simple. Our second sponsor for today is Mint Mobile. The big wireless phone providers seem to have forgotten that families come in all shapes and sizes. That's why Mint Mobile decided to shake up the wireless industry with their brand new modern family plan. Each line starts at $15 a month and you only need two lines to get started. No matter how big or small your family is, you deserve to save on wireless service. And if you're anything like me, the costs of your wireless service have been creeping up over the past few years. Since launching my Analog Curious episodes, I've had a lot of people reach out looking for creative ways to disconnect. And one way that I shared in those episodes was having a low-cost dedicated line that you can turn on on the weekends or in the evenings and be distraction-free. You only give the phone number to the people who are the most important to you. To get your new wireless plan for just $15 a month, including the modern family plan, go to mintmobile.com simple. That's mintmobile.com simple. Cut your wireless bill to $15 a month at mintmobile.com simple. Thanks so much for supporting our sponsors. Back to our chat for today. You know, I was going to ask you to explain what accommodation is for anyone who is still not really grasping that concept yet, but can you actually, in order to explain it, I think you explained it so well through the example in your documentary, which I'll put the link in the show notes, Um, but you gave an example about a family with a kid who was afraid of bugs. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, I think, uh, first of all, (laughs) I definitely encourage everybody to go watch that documentary. I think it's, I mean, it's a really nice way of just getting a, a very visual kind of and really moving um, image of, of what it is that we're actually talking about in 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 this problem and also in the treatment. Um, but the example that I gave was a child who was so scared of it coming into contact with bugs of, or, or being anywhere where they might have been that he was literally afraid to even walk on the floor of his house because maybe there would be a bug or maybe a bug had walked across the floor earlier. And what ended up happening is that his parents spent months wheeling this child around the house, like in a wheelchair, so that he wouldn't touch the floor. And that's the accommodation part. 
the, the child's fear, that's their symptom. Them not wanting to walk on the floor, that's their symptom. But when you as the parent start wheeling them around, that's yeah. your accommodation. And that's the part that you actually have more control over. And accommodation is really almost universally present when a child has anxiety. Not every example is going to be as dramatic as wheeling your child around the house for months, but even much uh, smaller accommodations will be, will be happening. Like when your child has social anxiety and when there's somebody that you know asks them a question, you kind of answer for them because you know that they're uncomfortable speaking for themselves or maybe they just don't answer. So you step in to fill that awkward silence or when your child does have separation anxiety. And so you keep the door open when you would otherwise close it or you do sleep next to them at night or you stay home when you would otherwise be going out. Or maybe it's just providing you know, reassurance to a child. Uh, another example that I didn't mention in the movie is um, a child who was really, really worried about their parents' health. And they're also worried about their own health, but really very genuinely worried about the parents' health and they would get sick or have a heart attack. And uh, one day after asking for like the millionth time, are you feeling okay? Are you healthy? Are you going to get sick? The dad uh, said to the kid, look, I'm really healthy. I'm totally fine. My heart's in great condition. Look, I can do jumping jacks. And he did like, you know, 20 jumping jacks to show that I'm fine. I'm so healthy. But from that day on, the kid wanted to see the jumping jacks every day. <laughs> so this, this dad ended up with a really good fitness uh, regimen <laughs> because he had to do jumping jacks every day so that the child would see, yep, I guess your heart's still in, in, good, uh, in good condition. And I can tell you endless examples uh, well, like because that. Because it's easier to do the jumping jacks than to deal with your kid's anxiety a lot of times. Exactly. It is. It's just easier. Exactly. And it's easier. You know, I think about things like the example you gave about a child going to bed alone. And there's a lot of parents out there that don't or they're that are struggling with that and they think to themselves, well, maybe I just need to be more sensitive. Maybe I need to be more patient. How do we draw the line between, you know, really supporting our kids and being patient and sensitive with them and and knowing when this is anxiety and we're accommodating and maybe making it worse through that accommodation. Yeah. yeah I th first of all, I do think it's a really tricky challenge for, for parents. It's, it's not always easy. And you do want to be sensitive and you do want to be uh, patient with your child. Plus, there are so many other conditions where we're really used to thinking that accommodating the child's problem is the best thing to do. And there are contexts in which accommodating the child's problem is the best thing to do. You know, if your child has a food allergy, well, you should accommodate that problem, right? Like you're not going to say to your child, nope, we don't accommodate food allergies around here. So we're all going to eat this food and you just have to eat it also. That doesn't make sense because they do have an allergy and you don't want to put them at risk. And so it's easy for parents to kind of apply the same logic to anxiety and think that that's the best thing here too. But what works for food allergies and lots of other contexts doesn't work for anxiety because when you are accommodating the anxiety, you may be helping them to feel better in that moment. And you also may be helping the whole family to kind of get through the day and keep things moving and get to school on time and to sleep on time. But what you're also doing is you're giving the opposite message from the one we just talked about a couple of minutes ago, the opposite message from, I know you can handle it. Because what your action is saying 
is really, I guess you can't handle it, or I know you can't handle it because here I am doing it for you or doing that accommodation. And so your action is saying, I don't think you can handle it. And that's why it's important to kind of shift the paradigm when we're thinking about anxiety and try to be really giving that message of, I do think you can cope. And so what I would say in terms of making that differentiation is think about like what is helping your child to cope more and what is helping them to cope a little bit less. If you're doing something that's helping them to take a step forward, then I would say that might be a positive thing to be doing. Let me give an example to maybe uh, make it more concrete or clarify what I'm talking about. We mentioned kids who struggle to uh, attend school, for example. Maybe they have a lot of anxiety. It could be separation, could be social, could be anything. And it's making it really hard for them to go to school. Well, if you have a child who hasn't been in school for like the past two weeks because they're so anxious, and then you talk with them and they're willing to go, but they want you to walk in with them for example, or even maybe stay around for a while in the morning. Well, I would say, sure, that is an accommodation. The fact that you're going to go in and you're going to stay there, that's an accommodation, but it's also a really big step forward. And I would say, do it because you're moving them forward. You're going to better coping. And maybe you won't be staying there forever. Maybe next week you'll not do that anymore, but right now it's a big step forward. On the other hand, maybe you have a child who's anxious about going to school, but they are going. And it's hard for them, but they're going. And they say, hey, would you come in and stay with me? Well, that's a point where I would probably say, that's actually taking a step backward. Now you're going from better functioning to actually lower functioning. And so I would say that's probably not a useful accommodation. So be very patient with the child when it comes to their behavior. What are they going to do? Don't expect them to change what they do overnight but be willing to make some tough choices about what you are willing to do so that you can really give them that message of confidence. Yes. And I think the, the going, ex, going to school example, I think about um, a kid who is refusing to go to school with social, a kid who has social anxiety and um, they, and you decide, well, maybe I should homeschool them because they just really don't enjoy school. They have a hard time at school. Yeah. And then you have a kid with social anxiety who's going to school and being bullied excessively and the school's not mm -hmm. managing it. Like yeah. That's a situation where you have to look at the whole picture, right? Not just forcing your kid to keep going in day after day without addressing the environment that they're in. Yeah, absolutely. If, if, if the school is not a safe environment for you, well, you being anxious about it is not a symptom of psychopathology. It's not a symptom of a disorder because you have a genuine problem. Maybe the best decision is for you to keep going, but also we have to fix the real life problem that you have. We can't just say, suck it up and deal with it. We, we have to address the actual real life problem. But when the problem is really living more inside your head and you're, you know, because you have so many anxious thoughts because you're so overwhelmed, well, then avoiding that situation may make you feel better, but it's not actually helping you to overcome that anxiety. And it may actually be making it worse rather than better. But you know, the other thing is, I don't, I don't expect parents to just stop all the accommodations that they're doing all at once. You know, there can be many accommodations that are happening. And this goes back to the like being patient 
you don't have to stop all of it at once. What I encourage parents to do is choose one thing. Really, just pick one accommodation that you've been doing a lot and start reducing that one. And do it, maybe even do it gradually. You don't even have to stop that like completely overnight. You could even do it gradually and let your child know why you're doing it and explain to them that you're doing this to help them. And so you can take you know, some baby steps. You can take some really gradual steps and still be making really, really tremendous progress. Yeah. Like I'm thinking about the example with my kid not wanting to get out of the car and he did get out of the car and came in when I told him that he needed to. But I, there are a lot of situations where a kid might've said, no, I'm absolutely not coming out. And then maybe you could just say, well, why don't you just step out of the car and stretch your body a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of that first step towards the goal. But I mean, I think that the the reality is that really anxious kids can be really resistant and often anxiety can even present itself as some pretty difficult behavior challenges. Yeah, that's totally true. First of all, they can be very resistant. And that's exactly why we focus so much on what is it that I'm doing so that we can sidestep those moments of, well, how am I going to get you out of the car? Because that can go really poorly, right? Like suddenly 10 minutes later, you're dragging this kid by the arm. That doesn't feel good. That doesn't seem like a wise thing to do. And it's not, but you're there because you started from the place of how do I get this child to do rather than you started from the place of what is it that I'm doing that I can change? There are so many things that you're doing that you do have control over. So start with them. But I think the other, the second point that you made is a really important one too, that it, it, it can look like a child being very resistant and it can also look like some anger some aggression, some outbursts. I think it's um, it's striking to me that everybody that I ever meet knows the phrase fight or flight. I think everybody's heard that phrase by now, right? Like fight or flight to describe the anxious response. And yet it often seems to me that people forget that half of that is fight. Meaning anxiety can prime us for flight through feelings of fear, but it can also ready us for fight through feelings of anger. And you know, when we think of a child being anxious only as the child who is scared and withdrawing, shrinking away and cowering in a corner, when we think only that's what anxiety looks like, well, we're missing half of it because it can also look like fight. And remembering that is really important because when your child does have that temper tantrum, when they have that outburst, when they're getting angry and doing something that seems inappropriate, it's easier to stay calm yourself and be a little bit more empathetic if you realize this is my kid lashing out because they are scared, because they are anxious. If you only see it as misbehavior, then you're going to get mad and you're going to want to punish them and discipline them. But if you see it as, wow, this kid is really scared, it doesn't mean that the behavior is now acceptable and okay but it does mean that I can stay a little bit calmer myself and see it as what it genuinely is, which is a really scared kid. Yeah. I I heard a story recently um, from a friend of a friend about a kid who went to, I don't know if it was Disney World or somewhere, a big theme park, and Mm -hmm. was just a nightmare, right? Just didn't appreciate it, didn't want to be there, had a bad attitude, um, was just kind of made it difficult, made things difficult for the whole family. And the first thing I thought was, 
that sounds like an anxious kid. But to most Mm. parents, it sounds that feels like this kid's being difficult. Why is this kid giving me such a hard time? Yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. And, and, you know, being on vacation and all the money that you've spent and this is our one chance and all of the fantasy that you built up around how it's going to go. Well, right. often it just creates that pressure cooker that, you know, that real pressure cooker of like, this has to be perfect and you're messing it up and it just feels so bad. The other context I think where it happens a lot is also school, because I think it's also harder for teachers to look at a child who is, um, maybe acting out, maybe doing some like externalizing kind of behavior. Maybe they're throwing something or yelling or running or something like that. I think it's also harder for a teacher to look at that and think this kid might really be anxious. And so it often will trigger the kind of response that is more suited to uh, a child who is, you know, um, kind of willfully trying to break the rules and that's really a, a mismatch for so many kids who are acting out because they are just very, very anxious. Yeah. Yeah. The kid who doesn't want to get called on to read out loud in class because they struggle to read out loud and then mm-hmm. they start acting out and create a big ruckus when it's about to be their turn and what happens, but they get kicked out of the class. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. And the other thing that also happens in school, the, the kinds of accommodations that parents do at home also happen a lot in schools, because what some, you know, just to, to continue from your example, what some teachers uh, who do recognize that the child is anxious when called on, what they'll end up doing is just never calling on the child. And that ends up being a miss also, because it means the child has a, less opportunities to learn to cope with that anxiety and B, their learning is also being impacted. And so I think it's actually also really important to think about how we can be supportive rather than accommodating in the classroom as well as at home or you know, other contexts. Yeah. I mean, I think adults and teachers, anyone who works with kids, you know, we want to make, we want them to be comfortable. We want mm-hmm. them to be happy and our intentions are always in the best of places. And that's why I think it's sometimes hard to wrap our heads around this idea of accommodation and how even if our intent is in the right place, our impact might be not where we want it to be. Right. Yes. No, I think that's exactly it. You're, you're trying to help and you're doing the most natural thing in the world. I mean, we are literally, and I mean, literally hardwired to respond this way when our child is in distress. It's that it's in a child's nature to look to parents for um, help and protection and soothing and regulation when they are anxious. And it's within a parent's nature to respond by providing those things. And in, if you're dealing with a child who's not particularly vulnerable to a lot of anxiety, maybe in a specific moment, it actually is going to be a good way to respond. But when you have this child who is prone to anxiety, it ends up maintaining the problem rather than improving it, which is not to say that parents are causing their children's anxiety disorders. It it is really important whenever we talk about uh, parents and what's helpful and what's not helpful, it is really important to make the distinction between there are ways that parents can change their behavior to help their child overcome an anxiety problem, to make the distinction between that and parents cause their children's problems in the first place. Parents actually don't cause the children's anxiety disorders in the huge majority of cases. 
And so I just don't want anybody listening to this to take away from it, you know, uh, Dr. Leibowitz blames parents for children's anxiety problems yeah. because it's simply not the case. Yeah, I mean, it's there's obviously two different lenses you can view that through, right? That we've we've caused these problems, or that we are actually really powerful in helping to fix them too. Right? I hate to say fix, yeah, but exactly. helping to support them too. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. You can be a critical, powerful part of solving the problem. Doesn't mean you have to cause the problem in the first place. Right. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about anxiety versus sensory overload? I'm thinking about the example with the kid that didn't want to be at Disney World. There's a good chance a lot of kids with anxiety also do experience sensory overload. So I'm kind of wondering, well, maybe it was loud and it was crowded and that from a sensory perspective that really overwhelmed him. How do you think we should treat that differently and differentiate between those? Yeah, I mean, first of all, the overlap is quite big, and it's not always easy <laughs> to differentiate between them, partly because the two things do tend to co-occur a lot. A lot of anxious children just really are uh, also quite sensitive to sensory stimulation of different kinds, whether it's, you know, the seam on my sock that bothers me more than it bothers somebody else, the ticket, in, you know, not the ticket, the label in the back of my shirt that bothers me more than somebody else, or smells, or sounds, uh, you know, really any kind of sensory stimulation. So there is a lot of um, co-occurrence. And also, you know, if you think about it, if there's something that makes you physically uncomfortable, well, you are going to start being anxious about that thing. And so it can really get very entangled and enmeshed between anxiety and the sensory uh, stimulation. It's, it's um, you know, regulation is like the constant challenge of our brains and our bodies throughout every moment of life. We're always trying to kind of stay regulated. And like to use a, like an analogy for regulation, think of an air conditioner, right? Like you have an air conditioner in your um office or your house and its job is to try to keep the temperature stable and some air conditioners are going to be better than others they're uh, they're going to vary on two really important feature factors one is how sensitive they are like how much does the temperature have to change before the air conditioner kicks in and you don't want it to be too sensitive because otherwise it's always working right if it if it will kick in at a tenth of a degree of change well then it's always going to be working and never gets any rest and it's going to get worn out really quickly on the other hand you don't want it to be too insensitive because you're going to get really uncomfortable before it turns on and the other thing aside from the sensitivity is the efficiency like how hard does it have to work before it brings the temperature back to uh, where you want it, how long is that going to take? So that's like an analogy, but in a sense, that's what our brains and our bodies are doing all the time. We're trying to regulate our own inner state. And many anxious children are a little bit like an air conditioner that's very sensitive, but not very efficient, meaning that they will respond to even small things that other people might screen out and ignore, but once they've been triggered, they're not very good at getting back to calm very quickly. And so it takes them longer and they struggle harder. And that means that they get quite uh, exhausted by it because they're working so hard all the time. And it also means that they 
become very avoidant and very anxious of the things that might trigger them because it is so hard and so unpleasant. And so, you know, you take um, most kids and you go to Disney World and it feels great. And of course, there's lots of noise all around me. And sometimes people push me a little bit and it's crowded and there's jostling. But I can screen that out and focus on the stuff that's exciting to me, like, you know, seeing my favorite character or going on a ride I like. But if you are, you know, like that somewhat less efficient air conditioner, well, you can't screen that stuff out and it becomes overwhelming so easily. And you want to avoid it and you get upset and you have that breakdown and you're temper tantruming and everybody thinks, why are you ruining everybody's vacation? And it becomes like, you know, kind of a nightmare. And so um, what I would say is overall, I think the um, attitude can be similar, meaning the solution to sensory sensitivity is not wrap a child in, you know, bubble wrap so that they're exposed to nothing because you do want them to gain more confidence in their ability to regulate those things as well. But you also really have to understand that what that child is experiencing is different from what you're experiencing. And I think that's not always easy for people to just wrap their heads around because we're both in the same room. So why would it be different from you than, for you than it is for me? But it is different for you. And if I can't acknowledge that, then I can't really expect to be helpful to you in how are we going to deal with this. So maybe it means much smaller doses. Maybe it means uh, a little bit more thought and preparation of what is the right vacation for this kid or the right you know, activity. Maybe it means just being a lot more patient when, when it is hard. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think that, that what you just brought up there of you being in the same room and feeling things differently and interpreting things differently is such an important thing for parents. And I also think it's an important thing to start talking to siblings about anxious kids mm. on because they also need to understand that they, if they have a sibling who kind of, I don't know, I hate to say gets in the way or causes problems during family activities like these, then that's going to be hard for them to understand. Yeah. Yeah. There's no doubt, you know, having, one anxious child in a family affects everybody. And that means it affects siblings just like it affects uh, parents. I think having those conversations with siblings can be really important. Obviously, you want to sort of match it to the developmental stage and the age and maturity of, um, of, of the child. But just having that understanding that, you know, what someone else is experiencing can just be meaningfully different from what you are can create a lot more uh, a lot more understanding and sensitivity. At the same time, another thing we might want to be encouraging siblings often is to actually be less accommodating. Sometimes the frustration and resentment that builds up in siblings is because they're doing a lot of accommodation as well. And teaching them also that, again, matched to their level of like development and what they can really understand, um, but teaching them also that it's not their job to always be accommodating their anxious sibling is also something that can be um, useful. There's a, there's a tremendous amount of accommodation that actually happens by siblings. Sometimes not even realizing, you know, like maybe you have a, a younger brother who's three years old and when you take a shower, they're very happy to sit in the same bathroom on a stool and listen to you tell a story while you're in the shower you know you're doing it because you're scared to be there alone, but they just think this is great. I'm getting attention from my older uh, sister or my older brother, and I love it. And there's also accommodation that happens 
um, with more awareness. And when it's happening with more awareness, it can be a useful message to the sibling that it's not something that's expected of them. It's not something that is required of them to be doing that accommodation for the sibling. Yes. Yeah, I think that's helpful. So thank you for all of this. I am going to put the links to your books and your documentary in the show notes. Is there anywhere else that we can find you online? I would say um, go to spacetreatment.net, which is the kind of online home for space, the treatment we've really been talking about. And there are a tremendous amount of resources there. One thing is uh, there's a list of therapists who have trained in this approach. And if you're a parent and looking for someone to consult with, well, you might be able to find somebody in your area. And there's many other uh, resources there as well. If you're a therapist who wants to get trained in it, there's also information about uh, that. And the other thing is um, there's a Facebook page with um, uh, information about space and a group that parents can join to just share thoughts or ask questions or have discussions relating to it. And it's uh, facebook.com slash space treatments with an S at the end, but I can send you that link to include in the in the notes. Great. I will definitely include that. And that's an important note that even though this book is geared towards parents and there is a lot that parents can do just reading the book that often we we need the extra helping hand of a professional and that is that's available for anyone that needs it. Thank you so much, Ellie. I appreciate your time. Well, thank you so much for having me on. This was a really fun conversation. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with Ellie, otherwise known as Dr. Leibowitz. If you want to get in touch with him or get a copy of his book, learn more about his method, go to simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 318 and you'll find all the links there. When you have a minute, leave a rating or review for this show. I appreciate your support. Thanks for tuning in and have a good one.